Hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining me for Season 3 of Uncommentary. This is your host for the entire season. My name is Marty Duran. Thanks for joining. Big shout out to my Patreons, my patrons, I suppose, at Patreon. And if you would like to be a supporter, or if you would just consider being a supporter, head on over to patreon.com slash uncommentary and do it right now. Hit pause, jump on over there, and make a commitment for a minuscule two or three or four or five dollars a month. Will cost you almost nothing, will be a tremendous help to me. Uh, in paying for audio work and scheduling and just some little bitty things that help make Uncommentary the uh, growing and good and hopefully even better this season podcast than it has been. Uh, if you'd like to give a one-time gift, head over to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and you'll be able to make a one-time gift via your debit or credit card. And uh, that would also be greatly, greatly appreciated. Now for this week's episode. My guest today on Uncommentary is Julian Zelizer. Julian Zelizer has been one of the pioneers in the revival of American political history. He's a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, the author of several books, including Taxing America, Wilbur D. Mills, Congress and the State, 1945 to 1975, On Capitol Hill, The Struggle to Reform Congress and Its Consequences, 1948 to 2000, The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and The Battle for the Great Society, published in 2015. His most recent book is Fault Lines, A History of the United States from 1974, co-authored with his Princeton historian co-worker, Kevin Cruz. Zelizer has edited 10 books on American political history, is a frequent commentator in national and international media, and has published over 700 op-eds, including his weekly column on CNN.com. Julian Zelizer, welcome to Uncommentary. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you're at Harvard, right? And um, uh, you, Princeton. 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 That actually yeah. was that actually was not on purpose. I promise. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, at Princeton, and um, you also are a CNN contributor. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else that uh, that we should know to get like the fully orbed view of Julian Zelizer before we plunge? No, I've been writing books on political history now since the mid '90s. Uh, I've written and edited a number of books, including one called The Fierce Urgency of Now, which is about uh, Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. Awesome. And you've recently published with some guy named Cruz, uh, Fault Lines. Now, um, that is is correct. That covers uh, America from 74 till basically the election, the recent election, I guess. Right. That is true. Actually goes right through the first term. Uh, And Kevin Cruz is like he's your grading assistant. He's your graduate assistant or an intern or something. (laughs) And <laughs> now he's my colleague at Princeton and, uh, and we enjoy working together very much. So we're going to be talking today about, uh, the year 1968 in America. So a little different than the norm. Um, but just in doing a little bit of research, uh, a very little bit of research, uh, Smithsonian calls 1968, the year that shattered America, not changed America, but shattered America. And Ken Burns' documentary on the Civil War, uh, excuse me, the Vietnam War, devotes two episodes to 1968. Uh, and the first one is called uh, Everything Falls Apart or Things Fall Apart, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a significant amount of, of shattering, changing 
uh, devastating things that happened in America in 1968. Uh, walk, start walking us through a little bit about why it was such a significant year. And if you want to even rate it uh, in some way uh, as to what kind of year it was on the the birthday scale of American years uh, as far as impact negative or positive uh, along that uh, along some scale that you can envision. Sure. I mean, I think it's fair to say it is one of the more tumultuous years uh, that we have experienced. It's certainly uh, not the equivalent uh, of the Civil War where the country literally breaks mm-hmm. apart, uh, but it's up there. I, I don't know where, where you'd rate it, but it would it would be a top 10 in, in terms of divisiveness and tensions over some pretty uh, big issues. The The most important thing going on is obviously the war in Vietnam. Uh, which had been going on for several years now and really was consuming the country. Mm -hmm. It was overwhelming the president, who was uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, who for some of the year was still planning on running for re-election in 1968. Uh, It was the focus of national news coverage. It was taking attention away from some of the other big issues that had emerged in the 60s, such as civil rights uh, or other kinds of social uh, policy uh, debates that had been front and center. And, and and Vietnam just became an overwhelming crisis, not only in Washington, but for American families who had uh, family and friends uh, who were being killed or who were at risk. Uh, and so so that's that's the most important story. And then you have other things happen, which we can talk about. Certainly two major assassinations will take place uh, in the presidential election during the presidential election season. Uh, one, Robert Kennedy, who uh, who's running, and the other is obviously Martin Luther King, one of the leaders of the civil rights movement. And finally, you have the, the famous uh, convention, Democratic Convention, which takes place in Chicago in the summer of 68. And it, what happens there captures for many people just how torn up the country was being it has had become we're outside the convention you had anti-war protesters uh, liberals protesting the democratic party inside the convention you had open debate and some would say chaos over where do democrats stand on the vietnam war and people were watching a party fall apart over a lot of these big questions um how how deep were going into 1968? How deep were we uh, into the Vietnam War? Um, had, the Pentagon Papers had not been released. I, I guess that happens in the early 70s. Um, but certainly, the president and his advisors and the generals uh, were aware that things weren't always going as well as the American people were being told. Um, and there was a, a consistent ramp up of people, of soldiers, uh, say service people being sent to Vietnam, kind of place where 1968 starts in relation to where the Vietnam War was going. Yeah. So the, the real takeoff for the war had been in 1964, which was when Congress had passed something called the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, mm-hmm. which gave president Johnson really blanket authority to do what was necessary uh, in in the region, the the ramp up of the war takes place in 1965 and 66, uh, first with a massive bombing campaign called Operation Rolling Thunder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Johnson starts to send troops in 66 and 67. 68 is usually considered the peak year 
for for the war. Johnson orders uh, over 500,000 uh, U.S. troops to be in the region. Uh, we're spending billions of dollars on the war in 1968. Uh, and and this is considered maximum involvement. The, the following year, Nixon will actually start to remove troops. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it had been going on for several years. This was when our involvement in terms of human power had really become uh, as deep as it had ever been. Uh, and the actual cost was was very uh, large. And, and a lot of what Johnson spends 1968 doing is haggling over something called the tax surcharge, which is... Uh, essentially a tax increase, uh, which he needed to pay for the war and wow. to make sure he didn't just have to gut the great society. And and although we don't remember this as much, it's not quite as memorable uh, for those studying the history as the battles on the streets and, and the protests. This was actually the major issue in Washington because conservatives in Congress, Southern Democrats and Republicans said, if you want this tax increase, you're going to have to cut domestic spending. And it's going to be a choice between guns and butter. Mm. Uh, and so early in the year, this is what Johnson's thinking about. Um, Tet was in 68. Is that right? The Tet Offensive? Yeah. So, so, so Tet is in January of 1968. This is a surprise uh, offensive against uh, the U.S. And, and South Vietnamese troops. And the, the actual uh, battle, which happens on the Vietnamese New Year, uh, in the end, uh, the U.S. is victorious, or the, the, the U.S. forces and uh, the, the non-communist forces are victorious, but it's an absolutely devastating um, offensive against against the U.S. because until that time, uh, Johnson and the leaders of the military had been promising that an end to the war was around the corner, that 1968 would be the year this is brought to some kind of resolution, and, and many people were willing to believe that, uh, that there was light at the end of the tunnel, as as you often heard. And then this happens, and it seems to defy any notion mm-hmm. uh, that the North Vietnamese are about to stop uh, and that this war was, was coming to a conclusion. So uh, this is when you have many people in the media, including Walter Cronkite, who is the anchor of CBS News, mm-hmm. uh, basically openly start to say there's no end in sight to this war, and equally important, that the promises the Johnson administration had been making that this was going to come to an end were not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we were, you know, deep in the jungles and we were going to be there for some time to come. Um, so the protests uh, back home are uh, are going strong. But this is before, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is before Kent State. That was the early 70s, right? Yes. Yes, Penn State is is later under the Nixon during the Nixon years. Now, the weathermen also had not started up as far as their terrorism campaign. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, but they were around. Uh, I believe some of them were around by '68, but they weren't yet. When, when you were talking about the anti-war movement, mm. uh, that's still not what you were were talking about. Uh, but they're emerging by '68. Um, so. Talk a little bit about the anti-war movement. Um, one of the things that I appreciate about Ken Burns' documentary is the breadth of interviews that he does. And I'm not a I'm not a historian. Uh, it uh-huh. inter- it interests me tremendously. So as I'm watching it, you know, I have kind of one one eye is like, okay, some of this stuff might not be a hundred percent accurate, uh, but I don't know which parts are not. Uh, but I do appreciate the fact that he interviewed so many people, both uh, 
uh, veterans, those who oppose the war, North Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, to give a bigger picture than I had ever known anyway of what was going on in people's hearts and minds. Um, it seemed, was there like a Rubicon for the anti-war movement where, uh, was it Tet or was it, uh, the image of the South, uh, South Vietnamese, uh, captain, uh, killing the man, the spy in the street? Uh, was it another specific thing that, that gave the anti-war movement a boost, uh, that eventually led, was it, you know, the free love was, was it hippies? Was it all meshed in together? Yeah, I don't I, I don't think there's a, a single event that creates the movement. The movement is around by 1965. And the first time you really see it is through teach-ins on college campuses. Uh, one takes place in 65 at, at the University of Michigan, I believe, uh, where, where professors and students would gather and and it was called a teach-in, but it was really uh, a rally. And <laughs> I think the most important uh kind of trigger or foundation for the anti-war movement was really the civil rights movement. So a lot of students had been involved in the early 60s in marching and protesting and simply uh, gaining the sense that it was legitimate to challenge authority, whether that was at the university, whether that was Southern uh, police and government officials. Uh, And then as the war becomes more pronounced and more real in 65 and 66, I think that experience was really the most important thing for prepping them in some ways to then go and take on this war. And there's a lot of continuity between civil rights activists and anti-war activists. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think there were a series of events that were really important before 1968. Uh, Certainly, for example, in 1966, Senator William Fulbright of Arkansas had held these hearings on television about the war and why it was taking place that right. a lot of Americans saw on the networks and, you know, found incredibly uh, disillusioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, 67, a year earlier, is really when you see the anti-war movement accelerate. Uh, for example, in October 1967, on October 21st, you have massive protests in Washington, D.C. I think over 100,000 people came. Uh, they gather at the Lincoln Memorial. They march to the Pentagon. Uh, you know, some say they are uh, levitating uh, the, the <laughs> Pentagon in, in protest. And this was this was this was already uh, a pretty big demonstration of force. And then you had other examples of this all over the country, just on college campuses. So by the time Tet happens, by the time you start the year 1968, uh, the anti-war movement is fully underway. Another really important moment before that year came in April 1967 when Martin Luther King uh, is speaking at the Riverside Church here in New York City and and comes out in in very strong language um, during... uh, a gathering organized by the clergy against the war. And and King comes out and and says this war is is a disaster and that it's leading the president who he had admired to divert money away from the key issues uh, and was resulting in large numbers of African-Americans and poor Americans being killed. And when King said that, it was in it was very controversial still uh, for him to do that. But but you had a lot of moments like that. And so when Tet happens, it's not that Tet 
causes the anti-war movement. It's the opposite. It's the anti-war movement was fully underway, and this confirmed everything they had been saying. So into early 1968, King continues um, with both civil rights and, I assume, to some degree, uh, anti-war um, speeches, or at least some, some amount of activity. Yep. Um, and then he's assassinated in April of that year. Uh, walk us through yeah. the, the ramp up and then the aftermath of, of his murder. Devastating uh, moment by by 1968. Uh, King was still considered in a lot of this, uh, a lot of the country, a radical leader, mm-hmm. uh, and and many still considered him what we would call today part of the base or the progressive base. But but he was challenging some of not only the laws that the country still abided to, but he was becoming increasingly vociferous in how he defined social justice. By 68, by the time of his assassination, he was leading the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which was a movement, an interracial movement, to call for economic justice Mm -hmm. and argue that the country had to do more to deal with the problems of poverty and economic inequality. Uh, His relationship with President Johnson was frayed uh, by April of 1968, in part because he was an opponent of the war, and Johnson saw this as a betrayal, given what the president had done on civil rights. Uh, but also, as as King started talking about issues like economic inequality, he was more critical of Johnson and more critical that the Great Society had not been enough mm-hmm. uh, and that more had to be done. So, so there was also friction between uh, him and and the administration. And there was also finally growing opposition to where he was going um, on civil rights, both these economic issues. But by 68, another uh, theme of King's civil rights struggle was housing. And he was uh, pushing and pressuring Congress to support an open housing bill, uh, which would end discrimination in the sale or rental of housing. And And one thing this bill did, the proposal, was to elicit fierce opposition in northern cities, in northern states, uh, and kind of expose the uh, national opposition to civil rights Mm -hmm. rather than seeing it simply as a problem of the South. So King is a very uh, controversial figure at the time of his death and also a very loved figure and and, and a person who is seen as uh, still – with all the controversy about him, uh, uh, a key figure in advancing and making civil rights a question and an issue for the 1960s. So when he is assassinated uh, by James Earl Ray in Memphis, it's devastating. And uh, there are riots soon after Mm -hmm. in major cities, including Washington, D.C., and there's fury and anger about uh, this. And his assassination also embodies the frustration and fears that a lot of civil rights activists had about the limits of what they could achieve. You're listening to Uncommentary with my guest, Julian Zelizer, and we'll be back right after this. If you'd like to place an ad on an episode of Uncommentary, please email Marty Duren, M-A-R-T-Y-D-U-R-E-N, no dashes, dots, or underscores, at yahoo.com, Marty Duren at yahoo.com. I'll be glad to email you a rate sheet, and we can talk about a 15-second, 30-second, or 60-second ad on an upcoming episode of Uncommentary. Let me know, and we will work it out. Now back to this week's episode. Um, You mentioned right before the break, uh, 
king desiring to, uh, I don't know if his desire was to expose the north, but the result of what he was trying to do was exposing some of the north. Uh, and that the attitudes uh, about African-American growth uh, weren't limited to the South, the negative attitudes. Uh, interestingly, just yesterday on NPR, uh, there was, a, a, I guess, a, the, a new study uh, chronicling how in the 40s and 50s or 50s and 60s, I forget exactly, in Chicago, um, the or- organized and, uh, I guess, legal um, depression of African-American homeownership and uh, forcing them to uh, be in conditions where they had to rent. And it was almost like a rent to buy in which they never could buy. So they could put money down. They could make payments for years at exorbitant interest rates. And it was the only option they had to live somewhere, but they could never buy the thing. And they estimated to buy the home. So they estimated it's like 3 or $4 billion of, uh, of wealth uh, from African-Americans just in Chicago just during those years. Uh, was taking place. So I have to think that some of what King was proposing with housing uh, would have exposed or put fear in the life of people who were protecting those kind of situations. Is that right? Oh, it really did. Uh, So when I wrote this book on the Great Society, the the issue of open housing I knew a little about, but it it wasn't really going to end up originally as being a major part of the story. But Mm -hmm. the more I researched this period from 66 to 68, um, I learned that this bill uh, was it, it wasn't Vietnam, but it certainly was pretty divisive. Right. <laughs> and uh, King actually moves to a project, a project to the projects in Chicago and, and in 1966 and lives there. And Did part of what that. he wants to do. Yeah, he wants to garner media attention for the condition many African-Americans lived in and really highlight why housing had to be part of the civil rights struggle. Uh, ultimately, if you didn't do that, you were going to limit the kinds of gains you could have. And the first bill is proposed. Johnson actually proposes a bill in 66. And um, again, the two major features are discrimination won't be tolerated uh, in sale or rental of housing. And you'd get rid of all these techniques real estate agents used Mm -hmm. all the time uh, to uh, make sure African-Americans didn't move into certain areas and to scare white owners uh, into moving and you know depressing certain markets and elevating other markets. It was really a horrible uh, institutionalized problem. Even government loans uh, often use something called redlining, mm-hmm. uh, where certain neighborhoods just weren't able to receive loans to purchase a home, uh, and white areas were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, uh, that from uh, as soon as this is proposed, you see violent protests. It, Chicago is one of the epicenters of the protests. And uh, one last story on this is during the 66 midterms, a couple years before, um, uh, um, one of the people running for re-election is Senator Paul Douglas, who was one of the liberal lions, a chief supporter of civil rights. And he's being challenged by a Republican named uh, Charles Percy, who's a very charismatic, good-looking business person, uh, who people said looked as if he was made to run for the Senate. <laughs> Bless his uh, heart. And it, the, <laughs> that's right. And the idea, though, that Douglas could lose was unfathomable. But uh, Percy capitalizes on this growing opposition in Chicago, uh, in Democratic areas in particular, ethnic white Democratic areas, to this bill. And ultimately, Douglas is is knocked uh, off. So, and the bill will languish, it will continue. And when does Congress finally pass something? 
It's in the aftermath of the King assassination Mm -hmm. in April of 1968 uh, when Congress finally, because of all the anger uh, and fallout of the killing, uh, that's when Congress finally passes an open housing bill, though it's really watered down from what it had originally been. And there's almost no enforcement mechanism in the legislation. But uh, but that's exactly how civil rights is changing in 68 into really a national problem mm-hmm. and starting to deal not just with segregation, but issues like uh, residential issues and uh, employment issues mm-hmm. and how our institutions perpetually recreated these kinds of racial injustices and hierarchies. So uh, Johnson begins to... Uh at least within himself at some point, he starts struggling about uh, his reelection. Bobby Kennedy announces that he's going to run for, uh, for the presidency. He was no longer attorney general. Was he in office of some kind when he announced or was he out at that time? No. So Kennedy becomes the Senator of New York and, uh, because you only have to live there for 15 minutes to be able to run. That's, that's exactly (laughs) right. Uh, so, so he did have a platform, and, and his own image had changed between 64 and 68, not just because of what he did, um, but, but he had gradually become less of a, again, what we'd call today moderate Democrat, an order Democrat, to being one of the voices who understood what this anti-war movement was about, someone very sympathetic to civil rights. He makes an uh, impromptu speech uh, in the aftermath of the King assassination in Indianapolis, uh, which many people find just incredibly compelling in, in speaking to the anguish and anger that existed uh, after that. And, and so Kennedy uh, not only has experience in elected politics by this time, but was really one of the more exciting figures for younger Democrats who didn't think much of Lyndon Johnson anymore mm-hmm. and uh, who wanted a new a new direction uh, for the party. So so when he, he hesitates to enter into the primaries and he's not really uh, very eager to challenge Lyndon Johnson, who's still uh, and then finally Hubert Humphrey. But but one of the things that happens is. Uh, first, Johnson faces off in the New Hampshire primary in early 68, and Eugene McCarthy, who is a senator uh, from Minnesota, also a voice of the anti-war movement, mm-hmm. comes in a very strong second and shows that Johnson might be more vulnerable than people thought. And that's when Kennedy decides, all right, I'm going to do this. Uh, and, and, and this will cause a lot of tension between him and McCarthy supporters who think he's a little late to the game Mm -hmm. and that he's going to take away support from the more genuine anti-war voice. Oh, well, heck, if it was 2019, he could still wait and not be too late to the game because everybody in the Democratic Party is running for president. That's exactly right. Very, (laughs) very different era in in terms of how this all works. Uh, so, um, he, he begins to campaign, uh, is doing well, I think. In fact, he wins, uh, the California primary. And, um, after that, I guess he's in the, the ballroom or in some ante room or whatever, uh, at the, the ambassador hotel, I believe is correct. Uh, yeah. and he's shot and killed by, uh, Sirhan Sirhan, who, I, I, is a motive known? I mean, I don't know it. I, I'm assuming he had some problem with foreign policy or didn't like Bobby Kennedy for something or wanted fame and fortune for himself. But 
Um, yeah, it's often it's often connected actually to uh, the Israeli Palestinian issue and no Kennedy's wow. yeah and Kennedy's support for that. I, you know, I always tell people with with assassinations, the the clarity of why someone does something is uh, is often. Uh, murkier than we like to look back yeah. on, but but that's that's what historians talk about. Uh, and let me just add, at, at the end of March, Johnson had uh, announced he wasn't running. Um, so this is key. Mm-hmm. When when Kennedy wins California, Johnson's no longer in the mix mm-hmm. uh, because he had decided because of Vietnam, because of the numbers he was seeing, he didn't want to do this. Yeah. Uh, so the presumptive nominee is Hubert Humphrey, who's the vice president. Uh, and then you have Eugene McCarthy. Then Kennedy wins California and he is assassinated. Two assassinations within the span of a few months. Uh, two of the biggest figures mm-hmm. in American politics. It's really hard to capture what that felt like for a lot of Americans who only a few years earlier had seen President Kennedy assassinated. Right. Uh, it's a vi- it, so the, the tension we talked about earlier is amplified by real violence uh, and and murder that's taking place at the highest levels yeah. of politics. I've, um, when people, uh, you know, frequently in, in our day, they'll say it's, it's never been as bad, you know, it's never been as bad as it is right now. Of course, they've been saying that for like three or four years. Uh, some have been saying it since Obama was elected, but nonetheless, uh, I always like, uh, have you guys read like, the 60s and the 70s, I mean, there were like bombings every 15 seconds in the 70s, it seemed. I mean, there were literally multiple bombings a day for like yeah. 18 months or something like that. In 1968, in the 60s, we had presidents assassinated. It hasn't been that long ago. Um, right. And the, uh, I mean, the upheaval that was already in the country uh, with the war and civil rights and the pushback against civil rights uh, to have the two, uh, I, I mean, I don't know another word other than the leading, the two leading faces of that kind of change, especially with Johnson stepping back, to be assassinated in the same year within just a few months of each other is uh, is a mindset. I mean, I was five years old. I have zero memory of any of this happening in real, in real time. Uh, so I can't even fathom what it must have been like for the family sitting around the television set. I mean, 9-11 comes to mind. Uh, seeing these news reports, um, I mean, when Bobby Kennedy announces at uh, Martin Luther King's death, there are shrieks in the audience. Um, it's, I mean, I, I really have a hard time putting myself in that position in what I feel is a sufficient enough way to understand what the country would have been feeling at that time. Yeah, I think it's very hard um, if you weren't there to to imagine. Because look, when we look back at the history it's a sequence of events we talk about and, and we go through the list and then talk about each one, but equally important. Uh, and I try to do this with my students whenever, whatever I'm teaching about is to really capture the mood, uh, that surrounded these events mm-hmm. and what it would feel like to live, live through them. And this combination of assassinations, uh, of voices of hope. So you have all this tension and all these really, terrible divisions in this war that seemed to have no end and was causing lots of families to lose loved ones. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, the, the solution wasn't a, 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 shi- a knight emerging mm-hmm. uh, to save the country. Instead, it was two knights assassinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just it, it, cr- it, it left people deflated. And it also cr- amplified, as I said, this, this sense that things were out of control. 
Uh, and and people living through the decade didn't know how this was all going to end. Um, what happened uh, in the civil rights movement after King's assassination? That's or that's early. That's the first half of '68. Yeah. Um, the famous picture from the balcony and uh, Jesse Jackson and some others are there. Uh, yeah. What happened for the remainder of the year leading into the '69 uh, and then into maybe into '70 with the um, the recognized leadership? Uh, within the civil rights movement with the most recognizable face now gone. Yeah, well, what, what division? I mean, the, mm. the easy answer is it, it it starts to divide. Some of the divisions were already at work before he was killed and he, and King was dealing with this. Mm. And the biggest uh, tension was within the civil rights movement there were some leaders who argued uh, that King had done great things, and and certainly Civil Rights Act of '64, Voting Rights Act of '65, were watershed accomplishments, but that the movement had to become more radical. That mm-hmm. what you were dealing with uh, was a country whose institutions promoted racism, uh, even if if the people living them within them weren't always uh, being racist. Right. Uh, it was reproduced, and so. Uh, the movement, uh, they had more voices, uh, and, and this would be called the Black Power Movement, right. uh, that argued uh, the whole direction had to change, that there had to be more direct confrontation on issues like policing. You had the emergence of the Black Panther Movement, which uh, argued that African Americans could arm themselves mm-hmm. to deal with the police violence that uh, was documented in 1968 in something called the Kerner Commission Report. Uh, And you had uh, other activists just saying the kinds of protests that needed to be done had to be more radical. Uh, And so these divisions without King in the picture anymore open up. And uh, you have both splintering, fragmentation, and new kinds of leaders um, who, who see the next stage of the civil rights movement in a very different light than King had. You've been listening to Uncommentary with my guest, Julian Zelzer of Princeton University. I got it right that time. Uh, You're on Twitter. You're pretty active on Twitter, actually. What is your handle that people can follow you by? Yeah, it's at Julian Zelizer, and I've been doing more more of it uh, and, and enjoying it, at Julian Zelizer. At Julian Zelizer. Well, well, Professor, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Uncommentary. I really appreciate you stopping by. Big shout out to James Peach, my audio engineer, and my daughter Abby, who helps with the scheduling. If you're not yet following Uncommentary on Twitter, please do so at UncommentaryPod, or you can even follow me at Marty Duran, both on Twitter, both pretty active. If you have not rated and reviewed in iTunes or your favorite podcaster, that would be a huge encouragement and a blessing. So please do that when you get just a moment of your time. Again, if you would like to support Uncommentary via Patreon or paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and make a one-time gift there, or you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary and sign up for a monthly draft of whichever size you really want, starting at about two bucks. And that would be greatly appreciated as well. Until the next time, Sobadeo Gloria.